Good morning, Living Water. My name is Mike. I'm on staff here at the church, and it's my joy and honor to be with you here this morning, and welcome to everybody watching at home. I want to start out with a, a true story, true story from the public school system back in the day when the Bible would be read aloud in the classroom each morning. There was a particular school district that had a rather large Jewish population. And some of the parents uh, that were sending their kids to the school in this school district weren't too crazy about the Bible being read aloud, especially when it came to those portions from the New Testament. But the Christian parents didn't want this practice to go away. So this became a point of contention between parents and school officials. Today, not a lot has changed. There's still that tension with parents and school officials. It might be masks, distancing, CRT, but this is what they had to contend with back then. And so they had to come up with a solution. The school figures out, like, what, what are we going to do here? We have to resolve this. So they said, from this point on, all scripture readings would take place only from the Old Testament, because there's common ground there between Jews and Christians, and they thought, this will make everybody happy. And it did, for a while. Till one day, little Jewish boy came home to his mom and dad, said, Mama, Papa, they're back to reading from the New Testament. I heard all about Jesus' crucifixion today at school. And the parents were irate. They, 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 they marched down to the school the next morning, and they set up a meeting, and they, they, they sat down with the school officials and said, hey, what, what gives? I thought we had an arrangement here. I thought we had a deal. Our son came home yesterday saying he heard all about Jesus' crucifixion. Well, this perplexed the, the school officials. They're scratching their head. They don't know why this is. So they pull the records, the reading records from the day before, and they see there it was. They read from the Old Testament, just as they had planned. So they show this to the parents, and they say, see, look, it was the book of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. And the parents had to apologize. They went home. Later that evening, opened up the book of Isaiah, read the 53rd chapter, and had a very interesting family discussion. And that's the text we're going to look at today. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to take that out. We're going to be reading Isaiah 53 in its entirety, but we need to grab the last three verses from Isaiah 52. And we'll have those up on the screen. So if you are uh, ready you, and you're able, you can stand the reading of God's Word. We read as customary around here from the ESV, and that's what I have. <clears throat> All right, Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. 
For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The word of God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, each and every time I stand here, I'm confronted with my limitations and my inadequacies. I can, as your word says, do nothing apart from you. But today, Lord, I feel especially intimidated by this passage of scripture. There is much there, much to be dissected, to be digested, really, so that we would um, bear it out in our lives. But it is impossible for me to do it justice. So I ask that you would be with me, help me to uh, articulate it uh, as best as uh, I can through the power of your Holy Spirit, that it would be spoke, spoke of with... Uh, with power, with fidelity, uh, that it would impact all of us, myself included, that it would hit our ears and penetrate deep into our, our minds and into our heart, and so that it would work itself out in our lives, that we might leave here impacted, not by me, 
Not by my words, but by your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Allow me to uh, provide for us all a little background. Last weekend, we were in chapter 11 of Isaiah. Well, now we have jumped some 40-plus chapters. So uh, allow me to give us a a bit of a bird's-eye view of the book. And what's interesting about the book of Isaiah, if you know how it's laid out, it kind of mimics the Bible. The Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters, and they are both are split, right? The Isaiah, you have the, Old Te- or the Bible, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament, 39 chapters in the Old, 27 in the New. Well, as you read through Isaiah, when you get to the 39th chapter, there's a split, and the remaining 27 chapters kind of take a turn. So the first portion of Isaiah is all about coming judgment, and captivity, kind of the bad news. But then the second portion is about deliverance. Deliverance for Israel in the immediate context, but then a future deliverance or a final deliverance that extends well beyond Israel, extending to the whole world. And this deliverance comes through the Lord's servant. Who is the Lord's servant? That is no small question to answer. The term occurs in both the Old and New Testament. If we look only at the Old Testament, we can see the, uh, the term the Lord's servant being used all the way back in the first book of the Bible, what many people consider chronologically to be the first book would be the book of Job. If you remember, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all carried this name, were called the servants of the Lord at one point or another. Moses, Joshua, Caleb, Samson, kings like David, Solomon, Hezekiah, prophets like Elijah, Jonah, even Isaiah himself, even Samuel's mom, Hannah, all referred to as servants of the Lord. But it wasn't just individuals. Sometimes it would be pagan kings and pagan nations, the nation as a whole being referred to at times as servants of the Lord. See, it's no small question to answer. So the servant of the Lord could be an individual or it could be a large group. So who is this suffering servant that we just read about? In Acts chapter 8, what's very interesting about that is we see an encounter there with a certain man who's reading this exact portion of scripture. If you're familiar with Acts 8, Philip, the evangelist, he rolls up upon this official riding in a chariot. We know him as the Ethiopian eunuch. And here's what it says, Acts 8, verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that he, that's the Ethiopian eunuch, was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? That's the very question that I just posed. 
Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this, with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So there it is. There's the answer. Mike, the answer to the suffering servant is the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Well, I wouldn't argue with you, but some would. Some would, especially those of the Jewish tradition. So how is it that you and I can read this and we see Jesus in and throughout its entirety, yet they don't see Jesus at all? What do they see? Well, there's varying views. The uh, certain group of Jews known as Messianic Jews, they see the Messiah. They see Jesus in the text. Some would say this passage applies to an individual like Moses. Then there's a larger segment. They think this is the righteous remnant of Israel, a, a kind of a subset or subgroup of the nation as a whole. But far and away, the vast majority of religious Jews today, they believe that this passage is speaking of the nation of Israel as a whole. That is the suffering servant to them. And they would point us to Isaiah 54, verse 21, where it says, Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. So traditional Jewish interpretation puts the nation of Israel here as the subject. And you know who they say is speaking here in the majority of Isaiah 53? It's the nation's. That's who they say is speaking. They're speaking collectively of the nation of Israel, and they say the Jewish people as a whole are suffering for the sins of the nations. Very different interpretation than many of us have. So let's, let's explore this interpretation and see if there's any issues or problems with it. Number one, I would let you know that all references here to the servant that we just read are all in the singular. All in the singular. After chapter 49 of Isaiah, it's no, the, it's no longer, I, uh, the servant is a group. It's plural. It's singular at this point because the spotlight narrows down. It narrows down from the nation to a single person rising up from within the nation. So that's the first thing I would cite for you. The second is this individual is presented without sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. He had done no violence. And that can hardly describe Israel as a whole. And that's just not me saying that. Isaiah himself, right out the gate in Isaiah chapter 1, says this of Israel. He says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And this is completely consistent with the theology of blessing and curses. Right? Long ago, God said, if you obey me, I will bless you. But if you don't, I will curse you. So the fact is, Israel suffered in exile for their own sins, not the sins of the nations. Again, that is the traditional Jewish understanding. And they say it's the nations who know this. And not only know it, they're the ones confessing it. But what do the nations know? Look at Ezekiel 39. 
Verse 23, and the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me, that's the Lord, that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries and they all fell by the sword. See, Israel's suffering didn't bring healing to the nations. In fact, what God would do quite often is he would use these nations as the rod of his judgment against Israel. Isaiah 10 is a fascinating chapter. You see Assyria being used as, the, as an instrument or the rod of punishment in the Lord's hand, and he brings Assyria against rebellious Israel. But then he turns around and he punishes Assyria for the wicked intentions of their heart. Very fascinating. You can see that in Isaiah 10. So the reality is there's enough sin here to go around. Israel isn't sinless. Neither are the nations. The nations are sinful. Israel is sinful. No one's hands are clean. Israel isn't this righteous, humble, willing, suffering servant, suffering vicariously for the sins of others, as some interpret the passage. It's a classic square peg into a round hole. It just doesn't fit. So it must be about someone else. And it is. It's about the Messiah, the Christ. And I think you can see that with a technical lens. I just kind of gave you a little overview. Um, uh, I would commend to you a guy named Michael Brown, who is a, a Messianic Jew. He's done great work in this area. He wrote a multi-volume set uh, dealing with Jewish objections to Jesus. If this is something you want to explore more, I commend to you Michael Brown. Uh, but this, that, that, you can look at that from a technical standpoint, kind of like we did a little bit there. But also, just from the plain reading of the text, like the little Jewish boy in our introduction, you come away you know, with a very different conclusion than the traditional one that's held by many Jews. So let's make the positive case for Christ here. Beginning again in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This is God here speaking through the prophet Isaiah, using very lofty language, high and exalted, right? And if I mention to you Isaiah, just string these words together, Isaiah, the phrase high and lifted up, for many of you, that's going to trigger something in your mind because there's a very famous chapter, chapter 6, where that language is used. It's only used twice. Isaiah only uses that language high and lifted up twice in the entire book. Both times to the Lord. It's chapter 57 and chapter 6. In the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw who seated upon a throne high and lifted up. It's the Lord. The same language used here of the servant. But now, things get a little bit ominous. Maybe a lot ominous. And just downright violent. Verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What's in view here? The crucifixion. And maybe more so the scourging that accompanied the crucifixion. Jesus was beaten so badly that his appearance and form didn't even look human. Appearance pertains to the face, the form, the body. It didn't even look like a man when it was all said and done. 
a hideous display. And the people were astonished. I think, uh, you know, we often think of Jesus suffering on the cross, and he did, but we, we sometimes forget the scourging that took place, the beating, the whipping. The Romans were very good at this. They perfected it. And I was reading just this morning in, in uh, uh, John 19, it says there that, and Pilate scourged Jesus, and then it kind of goes on. It's like, wow, in there, you just got to like unpack that and open that up because if you study history and what was entailed in that scourging, I had, I had some of it in here. I had to cut it out. And if this is dark, it was even darker before I made my edits about the whipping and the, the lash having bone and metal and glass inside of it embedded in there to rip the flesh out. Very difficult stuff. And some say this, this doesn't even compare with the movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ, from a number of years ago. That is two hours and seven minutes of uh, just a depiction of what we read in our Bibles. And some say that movie doesn't even do it justice. Verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. We have a textual issue here that I want to deal with. The ESV uses the phrase, sprinkle many nations. You may be holding a Bible that uses a different word than sprinkle. It has the word startle. And you might say, well, how is it that different translations would have one sprinkle, one startle? Uh, those don't really mean the same thing. Like, what gives? Well, my answer to you is, I don't know, but I will tell you what Hebrew scholars say, all right, because it's beyond my pay grade. It's beyond my intellectual capacity to figure this out. But they basically say it could go either way, and that's why you see different translations. See, the sprinkling refers to Jesus' sacrifice. This would be the cleansing from sin to all the nations. A sprinkling, very, very biblical theme there. But then the startle would be the nations who are startled at what the king of kings actually allowed himself to go through to be beaten so badly beyond human recognition. So which is it? Don't know. They, it could go either way. I'm kind of partial to the startle because I think it fits well with the fact that the people were astonished in the previous verse. But again, I, I don't know. Scholars are split. Now we enter into Isaiah 53. Verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's a couple things to understand here that will help just make this passage just illuminate and, and kind of give us a greater understanding. One is this is a future prophecy. Speaking about things ahead, you know, we, we've learned that this was written some 700, 680 years prior to the events of Christ's birth, life, death, resurrection. So it's looking forward to all of those things. And all of that, including his, his exaltation, is all right here before us. So it's written, you know, about future events, but it's not written in the future tense, if you notice, it's written in the past tense. So how are we to understand that? Because, right, he was despised. He was rejected. He was pierced, smitten, afflicted, oppressed. These are all past tense verbs. So how do you write something that speaks about a future event, but you write it in the past tense? 
See, what I think is going on, the best way to understand this is this prophecy written at a certain time looks forward to the cross. But then it doesn't stop there. It goes beyond the cross looking back upon the cross. Okay, that might be a little tricky to understand, but I think that's the best way to understand what we have before us. And what we're reading here is the perspective of a particular group. It's not the nations. You know who it is? It's repentant Israel. This is their confession. They're grieving. They're lamenting. And you know what? It's our confession too. If we share in their grieving and the lamenting, right? This is not about picking on the Jews. We're all in this together. Remember, we're all like sheep have gone astray. There was a time we didn't regard Christ, but now that's no longer. We regard him. So we can insert ourselves in here as well. And they're lamenting that they rejected God's Messiah. They didn't believe. Believe what? They didn't believe that the arm of the Lord had been revealed. Another way to say God's power to save by sending his only son to die. They didn't believe that. They missed it. They missed him. So with that understanding, let's move ahead looking at the next few verses because it's going to show us why they missed him, why they didn't believe. Verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So naturally, these words would follow what we just spoke of, right? They missed him because his incarnation, when God became a man, that's what we're celebrating this time of year, it, it was nothing to write home about, the way he came right? He, he, he came very unassuming, very humble. He didn't descend from heaven seated on a gold throne with, you know, legions of angels trumpeting his arrival. It's not how he came. He didn't come and set up shop in a palace like an earthly king. He came with neither pomp nor circumstance. And I don't know what either of those words mean. <laughs> Sounds good though, right? Can you separate the two? Like, yeah, he's got circumstance, just no pomp. Like, I don't know. Somebody will email me. He came in the quiet of a silent night, right? Revealed to some lowly shepherds and born in a dirty manger with the smell of animal feces filling the air. That was the context. And he's born into this family of meager means from a town of Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? He's the carpenter's kid. But he's the king of kings and the lord of lords entering into his creation, totally overlooked and totally ignored. Probably the greatest miracle of all time, if you think about it. The infinite God being crammed into a finite human body. I mean, really. And they slept on him. Literally. Slept on him. One of my favorite songs, While You Were Sleeping by Casting Crowns, speaks of Bethlehem. You may be familiar with this song. The, this is how the song begins. While you're lying in the dark, there shines an everlasting light. For the king has left his throne and is sleeping in a manger tonight. O Bethlehem, what you missed while you were sleeping. For God became a man and stepped in your world today. 
O Bethlehem, you will go down in history as a city with no room for its king. There was no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Many people think he wasn't tall and imposing like the first king of Israel, like Saul. Wasn't Jesus. Wasn't handsome like David. Wasn't Jesus. And because we believe in interpreting everything here in light of God's word, when you see a picture like this, that's probably not what Jesus looked like. <laughs> now that is a very beautiful man. <laughs> I, say, I say that, I'm completely comfortable in saying those words, by the way. That's, that's probably not what he looked like. So when we see that, we, gotta, we, gotta, we interpret everything in light of Scripture, right? That's our truth. That's, where, that's our standard. He, he, he was physically unimpressive by all outward appearances. So the confession that is, that is here is, is there's nothing about him, no form or beauty, that we should be drawn to him. People would be drawn to that cat right there. Right? Instead, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. John, in his gospel, he speaks of the light. He says, the light has come. John chapter 1 the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The light of the world had come, and he was rejected. Why? Well, often when you have those questions as you're reading through your Bible, sometimes you just got to keep reading. Because John gets to the answer just two chapters later. John 3, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and here it is. People loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. When I go off the rails and I go and sin, I don't do it in broad daylight and public. It's under the cover of darkness. And people don't want to have their sin exposed. But it's all going to be dragged out into the light someday. You know, the, the passage there in John 3 reminds me of what we see downtown each and every Saturday morning. We go downtown, corner of State and Second, we do a street outreach for homeless people, people in need, and we, uh, we minister to them. And this reminds me of a particular gentleman. Let's just call him Steve, okay? Steve is like a lot of people. He has no home. So at night, he goes over to the Daily Bread, and they let him in, and he can have uh, a nice warm place to sleep at night during these very cold nights. Then during the day, Steve will go make his way about town, going from place to place, looking for a meal, and he'll end up at the Bethesda Mission, another Christian ministry, and he'll have lunch or dinner there. Then he'll run into us on a Saturday morning, and because of your generous donations, we bless him with a coat, hat, gloves. Uh, this particular gentleman gave him boots that fit perfectly. He was so very happy. 
And so Steve is the beneficiary of God's kindness in many ways, shelter, food, and clothing. But when I talk to Steve and we, and we talk together, we, we'll talk like kind of face-to-face and we're like, oh, you know, man, it's pretty cold, you know. These nights, they get really cold and man, I can't wait for spring and you know how we do, that kind of stuff. Or we talk about sports, we'll talk about Penn State or the Eagles or something like that. Great conversation face-to-face. But as soon as I begin to turn the conversation to the things of God, This is what happens. I've seen it time and time again. I watch the body language. I start talking to him about Bible, I don't know, his beliefs about who Jesus is. It's subtle, but here's what he does. Turns his shoulders. Turns, and if I keep it up, he keeps on turning. (laughs) And next thing you know, I'm talking to his backside, and he's like, I'm not open for recruitment. That was his exact line wearing the nice boots that I brought him. I'd like to think I'm nice. I wasn't like, you know, turn or burn kind of thing, you know, which he ended up turning, but I mean, different kind of turning. <laughs> like, you know, I don't, we don't go down, we don't yell at people. I know street preaching and street outreach, it gets a bad rap. You see those people condemning, you know, and all that stuff. That, that's not us. That's not us. Very kind. Talk about all kinds of other things. But soon as you mention that J name, whoop, Car goes off the track, okay? This man eats off Christianity. He sleeps under the cover of Christianity. His body is clothed through the means of Christian charity. He just hates the Christ of Christianity. And it doesn't matter if you're Steve on the street or you're the fat cat CEO in the penthouse overlooking the street. The human heart is the same. We love our sin. That's what it is. But Jesus came and he deals with our sin. They they don't want to come to the light because their deeds are evil. They want to remain in the darkness lest the light shine on their sin and their wicked works become exposed. And Jesus was rejected. And if you and I go out, you don't have to be on the street. You can be with your neighbor. You can be in the workplace, wherever it may be. You go out speaking that name, you will get rejected too. That is, if you're preaching a biblical message. If you're just always telling people, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and, you know, he just wants to give you health, wealth, and happiness and all that good stuff, you may, you may not But as soon as you start talking about sin, righteousness, judgment, repentance, faith, dying to self, living for God, they want none of that. But we go anyway. That doesn't stop us. This is what Jesus did. This is exactly what he did. We follow Christ, right? Christians follow Jesus, disciples. He left the comfort of heaven, entered into a world that despised him, but needed him so desperately, whether they knew it or not. He still came. And we do the same. We leave the comfort of our homes and we go. And my little rejection there on the street is nothing compared to the rejection that Jesus faced. Nothing. And he's commanded all of us to go and do likewise. Great commission, baby. That's what it's about, man. We need to go speak his name. And then when I show up the following week and Steve mocks me, oh, here comes a little church boy talking about that Jesus. You're darn right. You're darn right. Ain't a darn thing changed. Can you say darn in a sermon, Pastor Mike? I just did it twice. Sorry. 
Could have been worse though, right? Could have, could have been worse. All right, verses four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now with verses four through six, and really the balance of this chapter, we have a major problem. The major problem is this, is that is theologically packed, okay? There is way too much here to cover in the amount of time that we have left, Okay, I remember uh, John MacArthur, who I'm a fan of uh, his preaching. You may know him. He pastors out in California, Grace Community Church. They took this passage of scripture. He preached it for 10 straight weekends, one-hour sermons each weekend. And in the 10th one, he got up there and he said, well, we've spent nine hours on this passage here. And I need to tell you, we haven't even covered a fraction of what's contained in it. And that's John MacArthur after nine weekends and nine hours. I'm Mike Bongo. I'm given one weekend, 40 minutes, 50 if I beg. So I feel the pressure. I feel the weight of this. So we're going to kind of skim the, the surface here, and we're going to get some of, the, some of the deep theological truth and just kind of skip along here. And, you know, I would recommend there's so much out there. John MacArthur has written a ton on this. I gave you Michael Brown. This just popped in my head real quick. Right Now Media, which I still think is active, we have that account, they did a roundtable discussion, Michael Brown and... Um, these other, you know, smart guys with the jackets and the elbow patches, you know, these types of fellas. And they discussed this for like seven or eight sessions. Really good, really accessible, good stuff. I recommend it to you. Just type in Isaiah 53, you'll find it. But what we have here is we have something called substitutionary atonement. That's the big idea. That's the big thing going on here. And you might say, I'm not familiar with substitutionary atonement. Yes, you are. You just don't call it that. Okay, we say Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's substitutionary atonement. So we may not use that language, but that's what it means. But when we unpack substitutionary atonement, it's like it explodes and all these glorious biblical truths just spring forth. And there are many are contained right here in this passage. So we're going to get some theological terminology. I will try to define things as we go here. But we see in this text expiation. What's expiation? Quite simply, Jesus takes away our sins. Takes away our sins. You ever use the phrase scapegoat? You might use that around the office. You know, oh, they're trying to put that on me, trying to make me the scapegoat. Well, that finds its roots in that book we don't often open, Leviticus. It's in there in the 16th chapter. Let me read some of it to you. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities. Sounds very familiar. On itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. 
Jesus is the scapegoat. He, he carries our sorrows, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we have expiation. We have another fancy word, propitiation. That is in this as well. Carries the idea of satisfaction or appeasement. So we have the scapegoat who is the lamb led to the slaughter. So Jesus' scapegoat, that's kind of the expiation. The lamb led to the slaughter is the propitiation. So when we talk about that in light of the atonement, what's being said there is in the death of Christ, the wrath of God that's aimed against us because of our sin has been satisfied. It's been extinguished, just squashed. That's propitiation. So where do we see the death of Christ in the passage? We gotta keep reading, verses seven and eight. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That would be in defense. By oppression and judgment, the tri that's trial and sentencing, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. There it is, verse eight. He was cut off out of the land of the living. That's his death. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And verse 10 tells us it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This didn't just happen outside of God's control. There's purpose in this. And we need to remember that because some translations will use language that we might find a little bit troubling. Like verse 10 that says, some translations, it pleased the Lord to crush him. That might give you a little pause right there. Wait a minute. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. You just described the, the horrific you know, nature of scourging and crucifixion. It pleased the Lord to crush him? Well, let's go to John MacArthur here in his commentary because he wrote something that's just amazing. He says, God's pleasure came not in the pain, but in the purpose. It wasn't in the agony, it was in the accomplishment. It wasn't in the suffering, it was in the salvation. After the death came the deliverance. After the gore, the glory. After the pain, the pleasure. After the thorns, the throne. And after the cross, the crown. That's good preaching. That's why he's John MacArthur and I'm not. He comes up with that, I just quote him. All right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Jesus is that spotless lamb, the, the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of the Father. Back up to verse 9. I skipped over it. Verse nine and, verses 9 and 10. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. There's Joseph of Arimathea right there hundreds of years before he was even born. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So in addition to expiation and propitiation, we have another shun word, one we're much more familiar with, resurrection. Did you see it in there? 
Resurrection. How does someone see their offspring? Now, Jesus didn't have kids. That's kind of a spiritual offspring. Those who would uh, embrace him as Savior. He gets to see that. How do you see your offspring and prolong your days after you're dead? In a word, resurrection. That's what it is. He died a substitutionary death. Three days later is alive forevermore. And he is risen. He is risen for our justification. That's what the New Testament says. Raised for our justification. Another shun word. Is that one in Isaiah 53? You bet it is. Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Did you catch it? The servant the righteous one will make many to be accounted righteous. We should remember this if you were here when we went through Romans. We labor justification. It means to be declared righteous or accounted righteous. Who? Who receives this? Who gets declared righteous? All who come to him by faith. By faith. If we had time, we could talk about imputation. We don't. But the New Testament sums it up like this. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Glorious doctrine. Glorious truths. Now at this point, you might be thinking, what about the title of this sermon? A savior who brings prosperity. Like, Mike, when are you going to rail against the prosperity gospel? I mean, you know, the whole health, wealth, and happiness, when are you going to crush that? Then name it, claim it, bab it, glab it, grab it, whatever all that garbage is. <laughs> whatever that is. You, the time is running short, Mike. When are you going to get to it? Well, let me explain. All right, and this is kind of interesting, I think. We plan these uh, Advent ser sermons in, like, November. And we knew we were going to do these passages. And, and I had Isaiah 53. And after I became completely like saturated with sweat from intimidation, knowing that I had this passage, uh, I began to think, okay, it's just before Christmas. And why don't we call it a savior who brings prosperity? And I had visions of uh, kind of juxtaposing what Jesus has done for us through his life, death, burial, resurrection, with what Christmas for many has become about the material goods, the stuff, that's the prosperity, right? And I was going to quote the verse talking about he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, that by his poverty we might become rich. Kind of talk about what that really means. This is what's going on inside my mind. So, you know, the plan would be that, you know, our Savior brings prosperity, but not in the way that we think, not like cash, boats, uh, luxury homes, cars, and gifts, but rather Jesus giving himself as our substitute. In other words, it's not about health, wealth, and happiness. It's about expiation, propitiation, and justification. And that's what I was thinking. I was like, ah, you know, I, that'll preach, you know, that, that'll work. But then, this was back in November when I wasn't as familiar with the passage. Well, I've studied it for the last week and a half. And as I looked at it closer, I saw in there, and you may have seen it, the word prosper. It's right in the passage. It's there in Isaiah 53.10 at the latter portion. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
I'm like, wait a minute, Where, where's my prosperity? This is the will of the Lord shall prosper. Now be honest, when you, when you saw a savior who brings prosperity, who did you think was the recipient of the prosperity? Us, some form or fashion, you know, the cars, the boats, the cash, or forgiveness of sins and peace with God and love and joy and all that. We're the recipients. Well, what the passage actually says, it's the will of the Lord that prospers. It kind of turns everything on its head. See, when you and I recognize we've sinned against the holy God and that we deserve a whooping for our sin, but Jesus took that whooping for us and then went to the cross and hung there when it should be us hanging there, and we do what he said, which is to repent and believe this, guess what? The will of the Lord prospers. It's his plan coming to fruition. It's how it's supposed to go, right? This is not about us, it's about him. It's not about, you know, it's about him receiving glory, not about what we receive. Even things like forgiveness of sins. See, we're like Steve on the street. We're simply the beneficiaries of God's kindness. That's, that's who we are. Sheep who've gone astray that he has been extremely kind to. So God's pleasure is found in him saving sinners like you and me so that we would be forever grateful and praise his holy name. Now let me conclude with this. As you think about gift exchanges and as you do these gift exchanges that take place even weeks before Christmas, think about the heavenly gift exchange. Are you aware that there was a heavenly gift exchange happening in heaven? It's true. The Father gives a gift to the Son. And you know what that gift is? It's you and me. It's the church. It's us. We're the gift. Jesus tells us, John 6, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And as amazing as that is, it gets even better because at the end, there's another giving that takes place. It's the son giving back to the father. And he says, see, I lost nothing. I lost none of them so that God might be all in all. Man, you know, we say it, keep Christ in Christmas, you know, those things which I agree with, of course, but the Bible in this passage is so theocentric. It is so God-centered. We're in it. We're the sheep. They've gone astray. That's the role we play, right? He gets all the glory. So maybe that's not where you're at today, though. Maybe you're like Steve on the street. And this time of year, when Christmas rolls around, you love Christmas because you love the lights, you love the decorations, you love the music, you love eggnog, you love Aunt Edna's fruitcake. No, nobody loves Aunt Edna's fruitcake, but she keeps making it though, right? You love the presents under the tree, you love time with family, good food, time off from work. You love all of that about the Christmas season. But you're like Steve. You're not madly in love with the Christ of Christmas. I hope that's not the case for us here today. If it is, as lovingly as I can say it, wake up. Wake up. You're missing it. You're missing it. 
Don't sleep on the suffering servant because you'll be just like the people at the end of the song while you were sleeping. United States of America looks like another silent night as we're sound asleep by philosophies that save the trees and kill the children. And while we're lying in the dark, there's a shout heard across the eastern sky for the bridegroom has returned and has carried his bride away in the night carried his bride. That's us. I love that. I, I'm, 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 I'm a bride. I'm part of the bride, the, the bride of Christ, the church. That's you and me. Look at that image. Again, good writing. He carries the bride away. America, what will we miss while we are sleeping? Will Jesus come again and leave us slumbering where we lay? America, Will we go down in history as a nation with no room for its king? Will you be sleeping? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. That's all I can say. I don't even know what to say, Lord. Thank you. I just thank you for who you are and all that you've done for me and my friends here that, that we get to gather in this place. I love these people so much. I look forward to the weekends where we gather together and we worship your name. This is about you. This ain't about us. This is all about you at this time of year. I pray that we would rightly understand what this season is all about. Yes, we enjoy the time with family and we get together and we laugh and we exchange gifts and I want to get some gifts and I want to have good food. I want all of that. But if it's all about that, I've missed what it's all about. Lord, help us to refocus this year to correctly prioritize our lives and put you at the top, at the center, in and throughout every aspect of our lives. Lord, will you do that, please? And Lord, as we collect this offering, I, I pray the same thing, that this is not used for us. Uh, we, there are certain things we have got to pay for, and, and, and the money makes the ministries go. And, and Lord, I pray that we would use these funds, that these, these men and women who give so faithfully from this great, generous church, that, that you've worked that generosity into, into the folks here who give and give at home and give online and all that, that we would be good stewards, that we would manage it well, to be about your kingdom, not ours. To be about your agenda, not ours. And so that more and more people might come to know that little baby in the manger who went on to die on the cross for our sins as a substitute. It's in his name I pray, amen.